0: If you like Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow and or give a five-star rating so others can find it too. During the course of your day, I hope you will tell at least one friend or someone who you believe might find value in it, because word of mouth is the best way for me to grow the show. If you seek to be an ally of the adoption community, I hope you will consider making a donation to keep the show going at Patreon.com forward slash Adoptee Land. Your contribution allows me to present a weekly episode free of advertisement and is greatly appreciated to add a valuable resource to the adoption community. Thank you so much for being here. It's Jennifer Diane Ghoston and welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. You, the listening audience, will have the opportunity through episodes in this podcast to learn, dissect, and grapple with some of the issues involving those of us separated from our biological family. You may have wondered what reunion looks like from an adoptee's point of view, or be embarking upon taking that journey yourself to search for your first family, or simply want confirmation that you are not alone in your experience, wherever you are on the path of healing and pushing through a trauma. Wouldn't it be empowering to have many of your burning questions answered here? Brad Ewell is my next guest. He is a late discovery adoptee who hails from the big state of Texas near Dallas. We both attended the Untangling Our Roots Summit this year, hosted by Right to Know and NAP. With all the excitement of people coming, going, workshops, and putting faces to names, Brad and I remained strangers in the daylight at that time. We each saw the other but didn't make the connection until the Adoptee Voices Writing Group, created by Sarah Easterly. He was a part of Cohort 10, where I got to hear his powerful written words. If you're interested in reading a piece he submitted, go to the ezine over at adoptee-voices.com, of course, after listening to this recording. And he's also published with Severance. In this episode, Brad shares a part of his ride on the river of the relinquishment, late discovery adoption, search, and reunion journey. I had the pleasure of listening a few times to the beginning, middle, and to be continued story to connect all the pieces of Brad's experience. He makes it plain and understandable, but it's still a lot. Brad is a husband, father, writer, and a police officer. He made his adoption discovery in 2019 at the age of 48. Brad was on the mock main stage for a live storytelling event and has been interviewed on several podcasts since being in reunion with both sides of his biological family. And if that isn't enough, Brad was able to help successfully advocate for his birth father's release from prison. Allow me to introduce you to a person I have at least one major thing in common, working in the field of law enforcement for nearly three decades. We open up and share with you a bit of our perspectives as among the first responders in service to the public is our career choice. Brad, with truth and honesty, is a masterful storyteller. He has a way about him that is humorous, informative, thought-provoking, and transparent. I do believe that as you get to know him better through this episode, your appreciation will grow like mine for how each of our stories have a unique ability to help someone else make more sense out of theirs. Fred, I'm so happy to have this conversation with you. You're near Dallas, Texas, right?
1: Yes, I'm right north of Dallas, and I'm doing good today. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah, I'm glad to have you. Welcome to Once Upon a Time in Adoptee Land. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and I know that Fred brought us together. Yes. And what's interesting is we both were at the Untangling Our Roots Summit in Louisville, Kentucky this year, and I saw you didn't know who you were and Fred kept saying you gotta meet Brad he's here and, and I'm like okay and I think he was saying the same thing to you so we didn't even get to meet we kept passing each other not knowing
1: who was who yeah he he kept saying there's this Jennifer here that you need to meet and I'm like okay introduce you to me and I disappear and I'm sure I now that I've seen you I'm like I know I saw her I couldn't tell you what day I saw you but I know I saw you just like you you're just running the whole time
0: right yeah, it was a really special event. They did a great job, uh, Right to Know and NAP coming together. And and I understand you're a part of Right to Know.
1: Yes, I became a board member of Right to Know, I think in 20, 2021, maybe. Maybe earlier, 22, but right around there.
0: Yeah, how has that been for you to be a part of that organization?
1: It's kind of been a big part of my healing process. The idea of taking something that had been really hard and doing something positive with it, and instead of dwelling on the hard parts of it all the time, trying to do something good with it, makes it a lot easier to cope with.
0: And for my listeners, um, I have had a couple, well, more than a couple episodes that have talked about MPEs. Would you tell them a little bit, just like a summary of what Right to Know is all about?
1: Sure. So Right to Know is an organization that really pushes for people's, their right to know their true genetic identity, whether you're donor conceived, whether you're an NPE that's somebody that had a DNA surprise, or you're an adoptee, they feel like, or we feel like everybody should have access to their true genetic identity. You shouldn't have to go to court or fight to find out biologically where you came from. We feel like everybody should just have the ability to know that.
0: Right. And though we didn't get to meet and talk at the summit, how was it for you? How did you enjoy it? Or or what was it like, the experience?
1: It was the first summit or thing like that that I'd ever been to. And for me, it was incredible, mainly because that was the first time that I had been in a space with that many people that had shared my experience, whether it was through adoption or through the DNA surprise. It's really cool to go somewhere and not have to explain yourself all the time. When you talk about disenfranchised grief or genetic mirroring, you don't have to then launch into a 10 minute speech explaining what all that is. You're usually talking to somebody that's been there, done that and already can empathize with you and talk with you about it.
2: Sure.
0: Yeah. There were a lot of first time timers, I would say, there that had never been, yeah, they hadn't been to a conference before. And I often think when I first went, it's been over 10 years, it was overwhelming. But even now, it's more, I felt overstimulated. And so did you experience that?
1: Oh, totally. So I am an introverted heart and two and a half days of being around people and especially in the super emotional space for all of us, I was worn out by the time it was over. It was, it was a good worn out, but yes, I, I was my social battery was all the way drained, <laughs> and I had done everything around people I could do. I, I drove there from Texas, and I was glad to have the 10 hour drive home in a car by myself.
0: Right. Oh, you drove from Texas. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty good. Well, I'm glad you were there. And I know you identify with that umbrella of MPE, Mm -hmm. but you are a late discovery adoptee. I have a lot of listeners that are LDAs and they always want to hear from other LDAs. So wherever you want to start and however much you want to share would be great.
1: Okay. So I'll I'll always start because people are curious about my childhood. I grew up in what i'd consider a normal probably upper middle class family in texas nothing ever seemed amiss to me as hard as it is for people to believe i I know you had fred on your podcast and when fred talks he talks quite a bit about always feeling like something was a little bit off i never experienced that i knew that i wasn't good at the things that my parents were good at i didn't look like them they were super in shape i'm a little heavier set There were lots of differences, but where Fred looked at it and when we've talked, he said, you know, I I always felt like there's something off. I always felt like there was just a problem with me that I couldn't get with the program. I tried. It caused some friction between the parents that raised me, but for the most part, I had a pretty solid normal childhood and growing up. It wasn't until my wife and I did ancestry DNA that anything ever came up that Suddenly, let me know things were off, and that started with once we had done ancestry DNA. A woman reached out to my wife because we had a joint account through the system, trying to figure out how she and I were related. And my wife gave her a ton of explanations. I, I say a ton, probably just a handful, because I mean there's only so many ways you can be related to somebody. And one by one, the woman would research him and reach back out to him like I've done the research and that doesn't pan out because of this or that. In March of 2019, all of that changed for us because we were out on a lunch date together. And this one message to my wife, she looked at the message, you know, the phone does this normal text message ding, and she reads it, and she's like, oh. I'm like, what? And she goes, well, that lady just texted me back. And I said, oh, okay, well, what does she think now? And she said, well, she said, we had given her one last explanation, and she said, the lady had said, I did all the research, and that can't possibly be how we're related but I have a theory. I want to run by you. My sister had a baby boy in Dallas in 1970 on your husband's birthday that was immediately given up for adoption. And I think that's your husband and his parents have just never told him he's adopted. That drops kind of like a bomb in your lap when you first get told that. But pretty quickly, my wife and I both laughed it off. We, We looked at it as, Almost pity for this lady. We're like, God, oh, I feel sorry for her. If you're trying to find this adopted kid, how hard it must be to think you found him and be wrong. So we agreed to do some research and try to help her get back on the right track. In less than 24 hours of research, what I found was that I had a ton more questions than I had answers for anything. Mm. I had looked at my birth certificate. That's the first place I went was my birth certificate to see what it said. What I'd asked the woman that had reached out to my wife to do was to tell us what hospital she thought I was born in because I was like, that. that's an easy fix. My records will say something. These records will say something. And that may be the easiest way to get her back on the right track. Well, when I got my birth certificate out, one of the first differences I noticed was my place of birth is ju- just a dash. So my wife was also born in Dallas in 1970. And I grabbed her birth certificate out, out of our safe. And they looked like two totally different documents that came from different places we were both born in 1970 in Dallas hmm. so the more I looked at them the more I'm like well this this isn't right this doesn't make sense I went back to my wife and asked hey did this lady ever tell you where she thinks I was born and I was like well she can't remember the name of the place but she said it was this little Women's clinic on, I can't remember if it was Turner Boulevard or Colorado Avenue, but it was in a specific place. It was a white building with a green awning and roof, and she described it so that she cannot remember the name of it or what hospital it was affiliated with or anything, but it was more of a women's clinic than a hospital. While my wife's telling me this, my brain is exploding because I knew exactly where that place was growing up. My family had a family friend doctor that we visited every time we went to my grandparents' house because this women's clinic that was then a, I think, an osteopathic hospital, but this place was maybe two or three minutes from my grandparents' house. So every time we would go visit my grandparents, we would stop and see this nice doctor, Dr. Carmichael, not because anything was wrong, but just because he was a family friend, and we always stopped and said hi. So that was throwing me off because suddenly I'm like, I've been to where she's talking about. I can't say that I was born there. because Conversely doesn't say where I was born, but I know exactly where she's talking about. The other thing that came from me doing research was I suddenly knew or realized that I had never heard a single story of my mom being pregnant with me, never seen a pregnant picture of my mom, I had never had like the guilt trip mom speech that I was in labor with you for this many hours. And this is what you do. No, none of that had ever happened in my life. When you grow up like that, I never thought about it. It it would never seemed off because nobody just ever brought it up. But all of a sudden somebody's telling me I'm adopted and I'm looking back going, huh, I, I've never heard any stories about when I was born. And my, I should say my parents lived close by, So they were there for all three of my kids' births. There'd be time to tell stories of what it was like having me, and it just never happened. The one thing I didn't want to do was call my parents and ask if I was adopted. That was the bottom of my list of ways to get this figured out. My wife, being smarter than me, when we brainstormed, said, hey, our friend that we know from church has known her whole life she's adopted. After the September 11th attacks, she decided life was short. She wouldn't know who her birth family was, so she had gone through the entire process of getting her birth records unsealed in Texas and seeking out her biological family. So I was like, you should talk to her because she might have some ideas that would help you. Like, okay. That's brilliant. I'll try that. I lay down in bed. I don't sleep a whole lot, but I stare at the ceiling. The next morning I call our friend and I explained to her what's going on. And she's like, oh, that's kind of weird. Do you have a picture of your birth certificate? I said, yep. She goes, okay, send it to me. And so I texted her my birth certificate picture and she said, I'm going to go find mine. I'll call you back in a couple of minutes. Okay, okay no problem. So she called back a few minutes later. And we would known each other at this point by like 10 years. And she sounded like a different person on the phone. We we were having such a nice chat before. And this time when I answer the phone, we keep talking. She's like, hey, um, <laughs> I don't think you're going to like where this goes. You know, and I'm, like,
0: I'm oh. chuckling because yeah. I know like we're both in law enforcement. And I can yeah. picture you recognizing exactly what happened, like something big happened.
1: Oh, yeah. I, yeah. Knew, something, I knew something was bad, bad was coming just because of her tone change. And I'm like, oh, yeah. good Lord. And she goes, okay, let me send you a copy of my birth certificate, and then we'll talk. I said, okay. So she sent me a picture of hers, and I thought she had messed up and sent me mine back. Because one of the big differences between mine and my wife's was my wife's is a white piece of paper typed out document. Mine looked like one of those old school microfiche copies where everything is black on the background and all the typing is in white. So when my friend sent me her birth certificate picture, it looked just like that. And I'm like, oh, she sent me mine. And then I read and I was like, oh, no, it is hers. She was born, I think, in 68 or 69 in Texas, but not in Dallas. But I take her birth certificate picture and mine and put them side by side, and they're all missing the exact same information. We both have dashes on where we were born. They were both not issued from the county we were born in, they're both issued from the state capitol. Was
0: that your so, light like, bulb moment?
1: It wasn't yet because I just flat didn't want to believe it. Yeah. Because you're, so you're 48
0: I'm, years old, right?
1: Yeah, I'm 48 years old, and I'm still trying to make this make sense in a way that has made sense for all my life before
0: this. Exactly.
1: And mm. so she she lets me look at it. We talk about it for me. Said, so I'll just go ahead and tell you, I did a little research before I called you back, and this is what adoptive birth certificates from the 1970s look like from Texas all over the state. Mm. So there's a really good chance you're adopted. My initial thought when I had seen my birth certificate from before was at some point my parents had lost a copy of it or my original birth certificate, and that's what a copy from the state looked like. I never scoured it, paying attention to the details on it, as much as I thought, oh, well, that's what a copy of one looks like, so no big deal. So she tells me that. We talked for a little while more. She talks me through the court process of getting your records unsealed, and she just flat tells me that's really not a good option to go with because there's been some legislative changes this year that I haven't kept up with because I've already taken care of mine. But the way it worked in Texas then was you had to petition the court to be willing to give you your records. You had to prove that you knew who your biological parents were, even though the state was keeping who they were a secret from you. So you had to say, I know I'm adopted. I know these people are my biological parents. And if what you said matched up to your birth certificate, they would give you an unofficial copy of it. If it didn't match up, they'd say, oh, yeah, we don't know what you're talking about. Hmm. And if you wanted anything deeper than that, you had to go to the court that granted your adoption and convince a judge why you should have a right to your own biological information, hence how I got involved in Right to Know. Because it it still seems to this day crazy to me that the state can keep secrets about me from me.
0: Yeah, super crazy. That they
1: yeah. yeah, so she said, and I wouldn't suggest just doing that yet, because if you get anything wrong or you go before a judge and the judge shoots it down, you're done. There is no recourse to ask a different judge to unseal it. That's the, the court that grand jury adoption is the only court that can unseal it. She told me the bad news, which was the only way you can figure this out in any kind of timely manner is to ask. And that was, like I said, the absolute bottom of my list of stuff to do.
0: I can imagine. I know you shared with me the story of when you decided to ask your adoptive dad about you being an adoptee. Right. You want to share that story?
1: Yeah, sure. Yeah. So I devised what I felt was a master plan, which was to call my dad's cell phone because my dad was in his late 70s. He was 79 at the time. And I thought, I'll call his cell phone leave a message. My dad and I have always had a really, really good relationship. My mom and I's relationship was a little bit rockier we can get into that later and talk about why I think that is. My mom was the consummate worrier. She was scared and worried about everything. So me calling my dad and saying, Hey, I want to meet, have coffee or lunch with just you, because I want to run some things by you, was not a weird thing. I'd done it before. There had never been an issue. We'd go grab lunch when I was at work one day, or he'd meet me for coffee one morning. We could talk about whatever. It had never been anything but no questions asked. Sure, where do you want to go, and I'll meet you. Of course, on the night that I decided to do this, I'm sitting at work. I don't think it was actually St. Patrick's Day, but it was the day I worked in a bar district back then, and it was the night that they were celebrating St. Patrick's Day. I'm at work, and I call my dad, because all I'm going to do is leave a quick voicemail. And that shouldn't take long. And my jaw hit the floor when he answered the phone, and I'm like, "Oh, no. <laughs> this was not how the this was not the plan."
2: Right.
1: I'm leaving a voicemail, and now I'm on the phone with you. So I try to play it cool. I, I would love to tell you that I played it cool. I'm sure if my dad was still around to ask, he could tell you that no, you sounded like a train wreck because I'm still trying to sort this out. But I try to lay out all the groundwork for why everything is fine. I said, Hey, you know, we hadn't seen each other for a while. I'd love to catch up with you. And I got a couple of things I want to bounce off you. So I'd really like to see you alone and not with mom, but I don't want you to worry. And I mean, I made my whole list. The kids are fine. Pam and I are fine. Nobody's getting divorced. Nobody's sick. Nobody needs money. Everybody's great. I just got a couple of ideas I'm to bounce off you. So I phrased it to him. He's like, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we haven't seen each other in a couple of weeks. Let's, let's get together. It's like, okay. He goes, but why? <laughs> and I said, well, Dad, it, it's nothing that we need to talk about on the phone. It's, it's not a rush. Whenever you have time, it's fine. Just let me know, and we'll meet, and we'll get together. He goes, yeah, but I just don't like to walk into things blind, so what do you want to talk about? I'm sitting in, in my office now, just staring at the wall, going, oh, God, can you, can you just not meet with me? Does, do we have to do this? And I would tell you that we circled that drain for probably an hour. It was more like a one minute conversation that felt like it took forever of me trying to deflect why we need to talk that That was the first time when I' had laid out all of that that he's ever been like, yeah, but what are, what are we going to talk about today?" Because he usually just didn't care.
0: right so so he so, knew he knew it was, it was pretty important.
1: He knew something was mm-hmm. up. Yeah. I don't think he had a clue of what it was. But he knew something was off and he wanted to know what he was walking into.
2: Right.
1: I finally said, You know, Dad, do you, do you understand? I'm trying not to have a phone conversation with you. He said, I do. And I said, Okay. And you seem hell bent on doing this today on the phone right now. And he goes, I just want to know what we're going to meet about before we do it. So I sighed. It is related to this story. My mom. I had found out a few years before this may or may not be adopted to this day. I still don't know. Um, she's got pretty advanced Alzheimer's at this point. So not many answers can come from her, but basically what happened to her was when her mom was probably in the last few months of her life, she was confused sometimes. So that's why we're still not sure if it's true and haven't really done much research on it because my mom has no desire to know, but her mom, my, my grandma was, confused sometimes pretty mean a lot of the times as she got sick or just in pain and not feeling good so just angry and one day she called my mom into her room and said hey i just i feel like i need to be upfront with you you were adopted i didn't really want to adopt you your dad did and i still kind of regret doing it and i just think you should know
2: mm.
1: so i had never heard that story happen my grandma had been had died probably 10 years before this at the minimum and nobody had ever told me this story the reason i heard the story was my mom freaked out one year because i'm a police officer that i couldn't get together for mother's day because i had to go to work when my dad told me why she was having such a hard time with it that was the story he relayed about why she was struggling that day was that this happened all these years ago and it's always bothered her so when you can't get together for mother's day she gets upset the story didn't make sense to me at the time. And I'm like, whatever. I mean, it is what it is. I'm sitting in the uniform in a squad car. I can't not be here. We had known that. So when I started talking to my dad, I said, well, and my parents knew we did Ancestry. I said, Dad, you remember we did Ancestry? He's like, oh, yeah, I remember that. I said, well, and you remember how you told me that you think mom may be adopted? Oh, yeah, I remember that. I said, okay. So this lady reached out to us through Ancestry. And we thought that it was maybe, because the lady's about my mom's age, I said, we thought it was maybe mom's cousin, half-sibling, something like that. And he, and he says, that's amazing. I didn't know they could do stuff like that. I was like, oh, yeah, apparently they can do stuff like that. He's like, oh, yeah, I didn't know. That. I said, but that's not it. And I was hoping that he would catch when I said thought, but he didn't. So we land to the next point when I say that's not it and give another pause hoping he's going to say let's meet in person. But instead, I get, oh, what is it? I said, well, the lady says that her sister had a baby boy in Dallas on my birthday that was given up for adoption. And she believes y'all adopted me and never told me. Now, like you said, after years of being a police officer, there's certain answers I'm looking for when I ask questions.
0: Exactly.
1: What I was looking for from my dad was this woman is crazy. She must be wanting something from you stay away from anything. And what I got was huh and nothing else.
0: It's the way you tell this story, because it's definitely not funny
1: what happened. You know, but, but, but yeah. You have to laugh in it that yeah. It's like Huh. Yeah.
2: So, <laughs> the way you so say. I get
1: a single yeah, I get a single huh <laughs> and then dead silence on the phone and I could hear his fingers drumming on something. I later found out I managed to call him at the one time he had jumped in the car to run to the store and he had turned his cell, turned his cell phone on in case my mom remembered something else he wanted from the store. So his fingers were drumming on his wheel. After a long silence, I said, dad, I'm, I'm not trying to be a dick to you and I'm trying not to make, I'm not trying to make your life hard, but by the way you answered, I already know the answer, but the only way that I'm going to be able to accept this as real is you got to say it to me. And he still sat there for another few seconds in silence and finally sighed and went, well, Bradley, you're adopted. and We've been trying to figure out how to tell you. I just bit my tongue because my first thought was for 48 years, you couldn't figure out how to tell me I'm adopted. That's how I found out I was adopted.
0: Were you angry? Like in that moment, what did you feel?
1: You know, those amusement park rides spin real fast and pin you on the wall and the floor drops out from under you.
0: Yeah, I used to get on that all
1: the time. It felt like that. It felt like the room started spinning and the floor dropped out. I think there was way too much shock to even be mad. I was crying, tears just running down my face, and I was just in shock. My real thing was I just felt immediately unmoored and lost. I didn't know who I was, who I looked like. I knew every childhood memory I had was true. But it was all tinted now with this lens of a huge cover-up for my entire life. Yeah. And on top of that, I mean, I love him. I still I still love him to this day. But finally telling me the truth came with another lie we've been trying to figure out how to tell you. To this day, I still don't buy that. I think they would have taken this to their grave had I not found out. It was just the feeling of being completely unmoored, Like when... When you see those after hurricane pictures of ships sitting up in a field somewhere, I felt like a ship that should be in the ocean and suddenly I'm sitting in a field and I don't know how I got there or why. I mean.
0: Yeah, that's pretty hard. Yeah. Every time I hear an LDA share this story, learning in 40 something, 50 something, it, yeah, it does something to me. I, I, I just can't wrap my mind around that seeming to be okay for a parent to do.
1: I still, to this day, I've never come up with a good excuse of why somebody shouldn't at least know as much truth as the parent can get for them, Right. which is something on a different podcast I talked about once, which was my biological mother chose a closed adoption. She did not want contact. This was a closed adoption by everybody's agreement. But even in those, I think the parents that plan to raise you should do everything in their power to find out everything they can about where you came from, tell you that you're adopted, and then be able to tell you everything they can. And that doesn't mean that they're going to get all the information that you may want, but as long as they've tried as hard as they could to get anything you might want to know, you can't really fault them at that point.
0: Right. That's well said. But
1: when they choose to get none and never tell you, that's a different story.
0: Yeah. And I heard you say on one of the podcasts that I listened to that you were on, they used to tell us, my parents, your parents from our generation, I'm a little older than you, born in 64, but always tell the truth. You know, that's really important. I don't want to find it out from someone else, right? Yes. Like that was drilled into me, and and it was just this horrible thing to lie. And I'm not an LDA, but I just pictured, you know, LDA's parents telling them that as kids, but they didn't feel the need to be held to that same standard.
1: You said that word for word. That's what was driven into my head, was that truth was of the utmost importance, and even if you screwed up and did something bad, it was always better that I would tell them I had done something bad than for them to find out from anybody else. Right. So now I'm on the flip side of that with what at this point for me was still a random person from the internet telling me I'm adopted and having to pry it out of my parents. Yeah. So that's a bitter pill to swallow when you've been raised with the truth is of the utmost importance all the time.
0: Right. And Fred, Fred Nakora, he said it and I totally agree. You know, I'm a parent. I've made plenty of mistakes. He said, you know, he's made mistakes as a parent and I get that. Like, I really get that. I think what I been driving home, and I'm sure you too, and other people, other adoptees that are late discovery in particular, don't hold those kinds of secrets. And I think the other part of it that's very difficult is everyone else knowing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a whole nother layer.
1: Where Fred, you know, found out at a family dinner that everybody knew he was adopted. I spent the first year and a half, two years of this discovery probably believing that the only people that knew I was adopted were the parents that raised me and my mom's parents because they were involved in the adoption because it happened here in Dallas. It wasn't until I ended up talking to my dad's brother's ex-wife, so my uncle's ex-wife, that I finally found out that literally the entire family knew. That didn't upset me as much as it shocked me that that number of people managed to keep a secret like that for that long,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you, you know, from being a police officer, as soon as you told somebody else the bad thing you did, they tell somebody else, right. they tell somebody else, and that's how you get caught. Right. So to know that this whole group of people managed to hang on to this, I was like, that is amazing to me.
2: Mm-hmm. I
0: feel like your discovery is still kind of fresh. What do you think?
1: It is. I mean, it happened in twenty nineteen. And I feel like there's been a good deal of time passed, a great deal of therapy. I'm a lot more settled in it now, but it's still a pretty fresh. And I mean, there's still days where I get upset about it just because there's so many layers that come with it. I don't know if you ever really recover from it and not in a horrible way. My wife and I were talking about it one day and I, I was trying to explain it to her and What I finally landed on was I told her, I was like, you know, you've had three kids. You've birthed three children. Every time that you gave birth to a child, you were fundamentally changed in some way. Not necessarily bad, not necessarily good, but that experience changed you. Every experience you have changes you in some way.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And I feel like that's where these late discovery adoptions land is. I'm forever changed by that, both good and bad. But you can't go back and undo that late discovery anymore than you can go back and undo having a child. That's something that settles into your brain and your body and you carry with you for the rest of your life, both good and bad.
0: I've said it plenty of times on this podcast that I believe I'm managing what happened to me and how I'm processing it. And when things come up, I I don't see it as getting over. And it's been, well, I've always known I was adopted. And it's been a while now, even being in reunion. And, you know, processing all of that. But it's just something that I'll be managing probably for the rest of my life, you know, because things come up when I least expect it. And I think you, through your writing, because you've been published in Severance and you've been a part of Adoptee Voices, where I finally did get to meet you, and this Cohort 10 that wrapped up recently, you were in the Hone Your Craft track. And I think writing is is just a wonderful tool that can help us learn to process these experiences, these discoveries, right? Would you say that that has been very helpful? I know you mentioned therapy. What would you say about writing?
1: I think writing is probably one of the best things I've ever done for myself to the point that my therapist has told me. I mean, I'm a grown man. And my first week in therapy, my therapist handed me on the motion wheel chart so I could explain my emotions because I didn't have a lot of good emotional words. Emotions weren't something we talked about at my house. So I've found that writing allows me to pick apart my thoughts and really dig down into them. And especially when I read them, I'm like, oh no, that's not what I'm trying to say. It gave me a lot of space to just keep digging in to how I was feeling, what I was thinking. And where that's tied into therapy is my therapist has been real cool about it. A lot of times if I'm struggling with something, I write about it and just email it to her and say, please read this before my session. We need to dig into this more. But I know if I sit down in the session, I won't explain it or be able to delve into it near as deeply as I could in two or three hours of writing on my own and then handing it to her. So I think it's been a tremendous help of just working through the emotions behind it, the thoughts of the the understanding of what it means. All of that has come from writing.
0: I think writing is a really useful tool. And there's been this theme with my podcast that I did not set out to do. But when guests share what groups they've been a part of, writing groups or what they've published or even just written, gotten it out of their head, It seems like it has played a major part in managing, I'll use that word again, managing life as an adopted person. We'll always be adopted. That doesn't change. It's just a part of our, I say, a part of my identity. I hope I don't over-identify with it or anything else, such as being a police officer, which we're going to talk about that because (laughs) I've had one other police officer on, a co-worker detective with me when I was uh, working in Chicago, And so you would be the second. And I've had a fireman. And and what happens is when my listeners give me feedback, they'll say, I wanted to hear more about the police stuff. I wanted to hear more (laughs) about the first responder stuff. You you know, everything else was great. But maybe you can like ask your guests next time to share a story or something. People are so curious about police work and police officers. And when they watch these shows, they wonder, is it true? Like Law and Order, is that true? Is Dateline, what do you think about that? And during my career, I never watched those programs. Did you?
1: Off and on, it's so, I think it's probably like any other career. If they make a TV show about your career, it's hard to watch because you know everything that's wrong in it. And then <laughs> you're like, oh, this is done. This wouldn't happen. I've been on our Bond Squad for, I think I'm kind of on... 12, 13 years now. And I remember watching a Law and Order episode with my wife, and the bomb squad showed up, and I'm like, that's not what they would do. None <laughs> of this is right. And so it's hard to watch those shows. And I mean, if for no other reason than everything is wrapped up in a neat little bow in 30 minutes or an hour, and you know as well as I do, nothing is wrapped up in a neat bow or 30 minutes in an hour of a case that they would put on TV. Right. I mean, I, I can wrap a shop with a thing in 30 minutes.
0: Yeah, it, it takes me 30 you know, minutes. Dress- yeah, it takes me 30 minutes to just get to a witness's house and and hope that they yeah. talk to me.
1: <laughs> so, when they're showing this huge murder investigation, they manage to get all the way through in 45 minutes. I'm like, "No. No, that takes days, weeks. It takes a long time." Right. But that's the nature of TV. Actually, the what I the funny part is what I've found now is that like Netflix and Amazon have started making their own shows. I like those better because these multi-series shows that don't skip from story to story, but, you know, carry a story through 10, 12 episodes, I can relate to those. And I'm like, that's what that's like. You're, you're really showing the long, long grind of getting some of that work done. So those are easier for me to watch usually than the network ones.
2: Mm-hmm. I, and then I,
1: don't I, get me started on like the CSI shows. I'm like, no, none of that.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I, pretty much the same way. When I retired in 2014, I did start to watch things like The Wire, which everybody used to talk about that they really liked. I found it to be okay. And then I did watch a lot of Dateline. And I usually tell people, for me, I like the fact that Dateline does like all sides. You have the investigation, the detectives, and then you have the prosecution, the prosecuting attorney or district attorney, and then you have the defense attorney, you have the witnesses. It kind of painting a better picture of how many sides are involved and how, right. it, yeah, how it plays out.
1: Well, and it's funny you mentioned Dateline. Once I found out that I was adopted, that came with two other shocks. One was bio mom had died 19 years before I ever knew that I was adopted bio dad was alive but had spent the last 50 years in angola state penitentiary in louisiana for murder when we talk about law enforcement stuff that sent me on a mad research dash to find out everything i could about who my biological father was
2: right
1: it basically pulls in all those cop and detective skills of let me dig through all the facts and see what i can figure out and i'll not probably not a shot because it was louisiana in the 70s But there's just not a lot out there other than most of what I got was newspaper articles. While I did that, I told everybody for the first six months after I found out that I was doing great. Everything was fine. It was a weird story, but everything was fine. And then Lester Holt did a special on Angola State Penitentiary where he spent three nights in Angola, interviewed prisoners, interviewed guards, interviewed the warden, shot all over the prison. And that derailed me because I had really kept my biological father as a concept in my head. Like he exists. He and I had emailed back and forth by that point, but I liked him as a concept. I knew of him, but I didn't really know him. I didn't have a voice. I had a few pictures of him by then, but they were all old. He was almost like a fictional character, more than a real part of my life in my head. Right. When Lester Holt did his special, all that changed because I had suddenly seen where he lives, what those conditions are like. I couldn't get him out of my mind on my third day of not sleeping, finally called our employee assistance program. And it's like, I need to talk to somebody, I think, because I haven't slept in three days and that's probably not healthy. Through therapy was where I landed on. I needed to go meet biodad. was, I just needed to be able to close part of that loop. And I don't know if that's, the cop side in this or if that's just most people's natural tendency to I wanted to understand where I came from even if it was unpleasant just to wrap that part of the story up
0: right I think there's a little bit of detective in all adoptees in most that I talk to I think to. So, yeah <laughs> investigator yeah
1: I think it's just better developed in people that always knew they were adopted because they've always been wondering things mm-hmm I think Fred in his book does such a good job of describing the maddening research that late discovery adoptees go through because you just lose your mind. I mean, when your whole world blows up in your forties, you suddenly need to know everything right now. And you just can't bring yourself any peace until you take pieces of the puzzle and get get them in the right spot.
0: Yeah. He writes about that so well. Like I could feel the pace that he was just all in, like I need to know everything right now. Yeah.
1: So I think that's that's a really solid explanation from him of just how crazy and single focused we get. Of I have to get all this figured out.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it's so fascinating when you share that your bio dad was in prison at Angola State prison when you learn that like what are your first thoughts especially as a police you know yes law
1: enforcement what's really funny i think coming from a law enforcement background and i said this on another podcast and i i don't regret saying it i've just never found a better explanation i'm going to try on yours today but somebody asked me what that was like as a police officer and i said well you know he wasn't the first murderer i met and I think, honestly, that was helpful because he wasn't a weird novelty in my head. I had met other people that had killed people before.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'd met other people that had done all kinds of horrible things before. It almost took some of the shock value out of him because I, I knew people that had done things. Mm-hmm. And I think the flip side of that for people that haven't lived the lives that you and I have, I mean, that's a huge hurdle to overcome of the shock of that. And for us, at some point, we've usually met some people that were pretty decent people that did a horrible thing. So it's a little easier, I think, for us. Now, I mean, at the same time, we're jaded. And I, I when I finally met him, I came in with all kinds of preconceived notions about him. It makes it easier for us just because there's no novelty there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it wasn't the first time I had stepped in prison. It wasn't the first time I talked to somebody that's taken somebody else's life. It was just another, it could almost be almost like another work day, as weird as that is.
0: Right. My birth dad died in 1990, so I, I never met him, but I did learn a lot about him. He wasn't in prison, you know, for decades, but he lived a pretty hard life. And right. I remember, I was mostly sad when people, when their lives are short, and I would consider that yeah. short, and when they, you know, when they're troubled, when there's just a lot of darkness. Yeah, that was my feeling. I don't even know if I was disappointed. Sometimes we can hear of a person's lifestyle and and be disappointed. Um, But I just remember feeling, yeah, sad.
1: Yeah. I think that's that's fair. I mean, as I learned, and it's, I mean, we're coming up in four and a half years of reunion. As I've learned more about his life and his childhood, not just from him, but from, oddly enough, my bio mom's family and his family lived right down the street from each other in stockton california he had divorced parents mom lived in dallas dad lived in stockton so he bounced back and forth between the two my bio mom lived in stockton for most of her life meeting some of my uncles on my mom's side they were his friends growing up and to hear them talk about what his life was like so it wasn't just his version of his story like you said, it paints kind of a hard picture and it's not a shock that he eventually lands where he does.
2: Right.
1: You know, not everybody that grows up with a hard life turns to a life of crime, but at the same time, quite a few people in hard situations eventually have to make a choice that puts them in a worse spot.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like how you put that. You told me a fascinating uh, story about how your dad, your biological father, just... Tells you everything in the beginning, right?
1: Yeah. We started getting to know each other by email. Eventually, like I said, once I was in therapy, I decided I, I needed to meet him once. I went into that meeting with not the best, but some really real preconceived notions about who I was planning to meet that day to the point that before I ever left to go to Louisiana from Texas, I had planned on having a one-and-done meeting with him. I needed to see him. I needed to talk to him, see if he'd answer any questions. And then we were going to check that box off my list, and I didn't plan on ever going back. And the main reason for that was I've had people that I've put in prison that I still talk to to this day. But the vast majority of people that end up in prison that I've dealt with don't do a lot of taking responsibility for anything. Before I became a police officer, I was working in a, county, a large county jail here in Texas. I learned like day two, you couldn't ask anybody why they were in jail. You had to ask, what did they say you did? And then <laughs> they would tell you because nobody in jail did anything.
2: Right. What did they even say they, you I mean, did,
1: right? <laughs> yeah, what did they, yeah, what did they say you did was the question, even though most of the people I was dealing with day to day were waiting to go to TDC because TDC was overcrowded. They already had convictions. There was no reason to act like something didn't happen, but nobody had done anything. Coming out of a 48-year cover-up, by then it was almost a 49-year cover-up, I was not ready for another person that couldn't be honest with me to have space in my life. I was still trying to rebuild things with my mom and dad. And the thought of having somebody else that couldn't own some of their stuff with my parents still saying, you oh, we were trying to figure out how to tell you, no, you weren't. So I wasn't ready for another person doing that with me. So I showed up with this big one and done plan meeting. When he walked in the visitation room, I immediately knew he was my father. It was the first biological, I mean, my biomama died, the only biological parent I ever saw. And I was like, Oh God, that's, that's what I'm going to look like when I'm in my seventies. Huh? Okay. Because I, I, I didn't say this early on, but I grew up pretty frustrated as a kid because my dad that raised me was a super good-looking dude, and I looked nothing like him.
0: And you and were that real always tall. always frustrated me. Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I was taller than him. <laughs> that always frustrated me. And now I'm looking at somebody, and I'm like, oh, God, that's me. Huh.
0: Okay. Your bio yeah. dad is 6'3", six, 6-something?
1: Six um, bio dad, I think, is 6'2". Somebody who's yeah. taller than me. Yeah. Yeah. But bigger man. So he walks up, we do the handshake hug thing, and sit, sits down and says, you know, son, it's good to meet you. And I want to start off, I think we have to start off the right way by me being honest with you. Now, Jennifer, I'll ask you from your police experience. When somebody says, especially in this, in this specific context, I want to be honest with you, what's probably going to happen next?
0: Well, I'm going to think, uh-oh. And then I'm going to also think we have a chance to work things out, work through things, maybe have a relationship if you're going to start, if you're going to start there.
1: For me, my defenses were so high already, my alarm bells went off because, I mean, in pretty much any interview school you go to, they say when somebody starts, well, let me be honest with you, that's the start of the lie that doesn't stop. My defenses all went up, and I'm like, oh, God, here we go. Here's why it's not his fault that he spent the majority of his life in prison. And instead, he goes, you know, I could tell you that I'm in prison because of drugs and alcohol, because I was using both when I committed my crime. But the reason I'm here is because I made a horrible decision that I can never take back, and I can never do anything to fix.
2: Mm.
1: And my jaw just dropped open because I'm like, oh, God, he's going to be honest about this, or at least he seems to be. And from there, he went on to talk about both life outside of prison before he went and inside of prison that didn't paint him in a better light. He kept going, he kept telling me, and it wasn't like bragging. He was telling me how he wound up where he was and what he'd done to survive in there. And I mean, there were several times I thought to myself, dude, you should stop. I would never find this out about you, and you should stop telling me all these things. But really, the more that he said, the more endearing he became because he was honest about himself. Which for a late discovery adoptee was something I was desperate for, was somebody just to own their stuff.
2: Right.
1: What had happened prior to our visit was he had told me, listen, I know the warden because you're a police officer and you're coming from out of state. You can have a full day visit instead of a normal one hour visit, blah, blah, blah. blah. And the whole time he's telling me that, I'm thinking back and looking my same defenses up of, Whatever. I'll be there for an hour just like, hey, everybody else, that's what they do. You don't know the warden. and I'm not staying here extra time. Oh, no, he was telling the truth back then. I, I showed up at Angola at 8.30 in the morning, and I walked out the gate at 4.30 in the afternoon. I got eight hours with my father.
2: Hmm.
1: And it was super cool in the fact that we got to talk for eight hours. It was horrific in its prison. No phone, no Pencil, no paper. I couldn't take notes. I just had to try to suck everything he said into my brain and hold on to it.
0: When he's telling you so much, and you're like, "You need to stop," or "I don't need." Did you feel like he was telling you too much? Because you know, as a detective, I want to know it all. Like, I just want to hear it all. Did you really not want to hear it all, or you
1: did? I did. I just kept thinking if he had stopped at any of this other stuff. There'd be no way I'd ever find out. It was stuff that he had never been convicted for, never gone to jail for, right. had done while he was in prison. So I'm like, he if he'd have kept all that to himself, he would have still been honest enough with me to where I would have never known any different.
0: See, I think and I truly believe this that when people are vulnerable, which it sounds like he was, yeah, that's where the magic is in terms of oh, yeah. in terms of the relationship. Growing stronger, or there even possibly being a relationship, it's only through vulnerability. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and it was like him extending the invitation to you to to be in relationship, to just the real deal.
1: Yeah, I think that was probably part of the hard part for me was I had all my defensives up. I wasn't vulnerable yet with him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I was still I was still in my one and done plan. So the more he talked, the more those defenses dropped because he was vulnerable with me and I didn't mind being vulnerable back with him.
0: Right. What's the nature of your relationship today?
1: After our first visit, I walked out the gate, called my wife because she had thought I was going to be there for an hour and, you know, she hadn't heard from her husband in eight hours after he went gallivanting off to prison. And I called her and she said, you know, what, what do you think? And I said, I really don't know what to do with this. I genuinely like him. I mean, that, that was not part of my going in plan. What happened after our first visit was life dealt me another couple of hard blows. The dad that raised me died less than a month after I met bio dad for the first time. Three weeks after the dad that raised me died, COVID hit, prison visitation shut down. Between dealing with my dad's death, finding out, how much of a secret he had kept the progression on mom's Alzheimer's, helping her get settled in without him anymore. We still communicated off and on by email, but what I had expected to really be working on the relationship fell behind all those other things. The only upside to that was when COVID hit. Since they shut down in-person visitation, we got video visitation, so I was able to see him once a week for 10 minutes at a time anytime i could the more that we got to know each other the more i really found myself questioning why he was still in prison i mean he'd taken another person's life he had been given a life sentence but way too long for your podcast a bunch of legislative wrangling happened between 72 and about 76 in louisiana that took him from life with the eligibility of parole to them retroactively changing laws and eventually him becoming a life without parole prisoner after he had pled guilty to something that would have allowed him the opportunity for parole or release. Mm. As we talk, A, I thought he is not the person that went into prison in 72, and I've told him this, it's not a shock for him to hear, I'm thankful he went to prison because I believe if he hadn't gone to prison, I would have never met him because his life would have gotten him killed well before I would have found out I was adopted. I didn't feel like constitutionally what had happened to him was right. I will never set my hand on be like, if somebody takes another man's life, this is how long you should spend in prison. But knowing what he was sentenced under versus where he was now, I felt like constitutionally that was pretty wrong to have made a deal with somebody and then change it over a four-year period and totally rewrite that deal where that person has no ability to negotiate or fix what you're changing. Yeah. So.
0: Does your dad think he was reformed in prison?
1: I think so. And I don't know if he would tell you prison reformed him or he, and I don't, I I, and I I would honestly say, I don't, I shouldn't say honestly because that's when the lies start. But I would say that, nobody else reforms somebody people reform themselves you know if if an alcoholic wants to stop being an alcoholic they're the ones that have to ultimately make that choice to stop nobody else i can't i can't make that choice for you i can't love you hard enough to make that choice you've got to decide you're tired of one life and you want a different life no matter what that choice is for anybody it's always on the person making that choice but yes he The man that walked into into Angola in 1972 absolutely belonged in Angola. The man that I met in uh, 2020, he had been sentenced to Angola, but he was serving no purpose there as far as needing rehabilitation, needing to change his life. He had changed himself completely, but he was still stuck there. So as we got to know each other, Louisiana started doing some decent legislative changes that eventually made him eligible eligible for parole as we're getting noticed like i said i was seeing less and less of a reason that he needed to be a person in prison and had really started considering him how could i help him get a second chance so when these legislative changes happened i started trying to help him get out of prison um, the first legislative change that came through didn't get us very far. I spent about a year working on it with the DA's office where he was convicted. The legislative change made it a possibility to resentence people, but not a requirement. The DA's office eventually told me, "Listen, we're we're just not going to do it. At this point, we're not interested in pursuing this with him. We're not in, we're not doing it." And there was no other recourse there. But the lady that I was talking to was really nice and said, "I believe there's legislation coming." And by this time, it was 2021. And she said, I believe there's legislation coming in 22 that may actually help your father more. So let's just play this out. If that legislation doesn't come, reach out to me again. You know, it's, it's the political monster that we all live with every day. Nobody wants to be the person to let somebody out of prison or do something that may be unpopular. But if something else happens behind the scenes that doesn't involve them, they don't mind directing you towards that because that may still get you your goal without involving them. What happened was they introduced a bill for people who had originally been sentenced like him to be immediately eligible for parole. When that happened, I reached out to the organizations called the Parole Project in Louisiana. I reached out to them to talk about, you know, my father's case and what I could do to help him with help with that. I'm sure they saw an opportunity because I was still a police officer. I'm still one today, but they saw the opportunity with a police officer willing to speak on a prisoner's behalf that was also their parent of a good witness for them. So I actually found myself in the Louisiana House and Senate Judiciary Committees testifying on behalf of a bill to make 40 guys eligible for parole for the first time in their prison sentence. Mm. From that, that bill passed. I was back in Angola in November of 22 sitting at my father's first parole hearing in, see if I can get it right. Like he does 50 years, four months, three weeks and six days, I believe. Wow. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you've done that much time, you're counting minutes.
0: You're clear about it. So
1: we got, Got the parole hearing. The parole hearing super stressful because it's got to be a unanimous vote to get you out. Any person decides they don't like what you said, you stay. He's in his late 70s by then. It wasn't like we had ample time to just do this again in a couple of years if they denied him. When we may, we may not, but we didn't know then. At the end of the hearing, they granted him parole. On top of that, he was walking out the gate the next morning, or what ended up being the next afternoon, but the next day. Wow. The next day, I found myself back at Angola, and instead of going in to see my father, walking in circles in the parking lot, waiting for him to come out and see me as a free man.
2: Mm.
1: I actually told this story last night, the moth, but short of my marriage and the birth of my kids, that's probably been one of the most significant days in my life, was watching him walk out that gate and get a second chance at life.
0: That's pretty spectacular, your your story. Yeah, I remember when I first heard it, I was like, what? When Fred was telling me, I was like, what'd you say, Fred? Yeah. And then, of course, you and I have talked about it. And it's it's so many twists and turns. And I highly recommend uh, listeners to to listen to your story on other podcasts. I listened to The Secret in My DNA, hosted by Michelle. And Adoption of Longview with Lori Holden. You're actually on there with Fred.
1: Another one I always tell people to try to listen to and it's the longest on there. There's a five part series from empowered to connect. And that's been, I think it overall, I think they're all 30 minute episodes here and for a long haul when you listen to them, that has been one of my favorite podcasts to do because the host of that is my biological cousin and the daughter of the aunt that found me through ancestry. So when we're doing those, that interview, She's telling me parts of my story I didn't know because she was on the back end of it watching it happen.
0: Oh, I got to check that out. I'll be sure and put that in the show notes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So that was super, I mean, she was a super cool lady anyway. She's actually an adoptive mom of, I always get it wrong. I want to say five, but maybe six adopted kids and has a pretty cool view on adoption anyway, but just a super cool person. But to be able to be on a podcast and not only be interviewed and tell my story, but learn more of my story was just fun.
0: I bet you have to have to check but, that out. And do you have a yeah, link for so the moth, as... the moth radio? Uh,
1: not yet. Okay. Nope. It was the main stage in Dallas yesterday. I don't know when they'll put it out. On my Instagram, I think you put that. I listed for your show notes. I keep everything updated on there, so whenever it does come out, I'll link to it in there.
0: Oh, good.
1: But yeah. I mean, as far as relationship with my my dad now, I like call pops. He is just, we just celebrated six months out of prison. He lives 45 minutes away from me. I think he's coming to my house on Monday to hang out all day. We get to know each other finally in a normal environment, which has been really cool for us because getting to know somebody by 10 minute phone calls, emails, and video visits that are all monitored is way different from sitting down on the couch with somebody and just talking.
0: Right. He sounds like somebody you really like.
1: I do. Yeah. I, I, I don't just like him. I, I mean, I've told him, I said it last night. He came to the moth and got to hear me talk about him getting out of prison. I love him. He did a horrible thing and he is a much changed and good man.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I'm proud to say that I'm related to him. I'm thrilled to death. He's in my life. My wife likes him. My kids have gotten to meet him. I have an awesome picture of him that my brother, I have a half brother that from his side of the family, that he posted on Facebook that was the day after Christmas when he was out of prison, he spent Christmas with his sister because she's got some memory issues. The day after Christmas, he came to Dallas, spent it with his ex-wife, my half-brother, and four generations of biological kids and grandkids, well, biological grandkids and great-grandkids. He's never even met before. Hmm. It's a beautiful picture because he is sitting on the couch with like that golden retriever, just dumb grin across his face, just taking it all in. And there's kids crawling everywhere in pajamas and playing with stuff. And there he is, getting to watch it all for the first time in his life.
0: Right, and he has one other son. That what does he make yeah. of that? Two, both his sons are police
2: officers.
1: You know. <laughs> I don't know. It's really weird when you, you know, dive off into like nature and nurture because, you know, a lot of people grow up wanting to be different than their parents. My brother was one of those people. I don't blame him. I mean, I had the blessing of having a dad that was at every event I did from two and a half years old, his dad was in prison. And that's the only way he got to see it. I think he may have made some of his career choices more towards, I don't want to be that person in my life. I was raised by a dad who was in the military and very rule-driven, and I think I landed in policing in a different way, but still, that's where we both landed.
0: But it is fascinating. It's interesting. Yeah, and I, yeah. I mean,
1: I think you you've dealt with enough officers like I have that police officers that are pretty good at this job is because they understand criminal thought patterns and things like that. And I'm not convinced that i grown up with him in my life, that I would have landed much different than him. Mm-hmm. I think there's an absolute possibility I could have found myself sitting in the cell with him doing some things I shouldn't have done. Yeah. So I was blessed in that manner that I was raised by people that didn't tolerate that and pushed me in a different direction.
0: Yeah, you got the environment that you needed to kind of tweak what DNA was yeah. going to be about. Mm-hmm. I agree with that, too. Is there anything you know now or since you have the career in law enforcement that you did not know before coming on the job?
1: That I've learned from my DNA discovery or just in law enforcement? In law
0: for, yeah, something that law enforcement, through law enforcement, through your work, that you, know, you couldn't, you didn't know prior to being a police officer.
1: And I really think it get started with my parents, but like I said, we grew up. I grew up very upper middle class at the lowest, but they were always really open to people. And I think what I've learned over this career is that a lot of people have a lot of stories about how they landed where they were. 99% of the time, the people sitting in jail, that, that was not their life plan. I mean, there are some people that just grow up doing criminal things their whole life because that's how they wanted to be. But I think the vast majority that wasn't their life, whether it was circumstance or one bad decision that led to another decision that led to another decision. I met a guy actually, when we were at the conference and I thought he explained it so much better than I ever had. He's an artist that I had followed. His name's Gerald Tidwell. I thought he was a great dude. I reached out to him because he lives in Louisville and he invited me to, I asked if he had his artwork showing anywhere. he's like, dude, just come to my house. And I'm like, okay. And what I thought was going to be a quick, like 30 minute tour and seeing some of his art stuff. I was at this house for five hours just talking life.
2: Mm.
1: And his, his theory is that everybody is two decisions away from being in a totally different life than they are.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You make one decision to get you off the path, and another decision that kind of cements the new path, and you suddenly find yourself somewhere else. It's that idea, uh, even the parents that raised me, I doubt when this started, they intended to not tell me my entire life that I was adopted, but one day of a secret leads to another day of a secret leads to another day of secret. You know, it's kind of like using dope, use just a teeny tiny bit of dope and you're doing okay. Then you need a little more to feel straight. Then you need a little more, Then you need a little more. And you didn't plan on being an addict, but here you are.
2: Yeah,
0: so true. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, that's that's wisdom. Yeah. So, is there anything I didn't ask you that you want to share?
1: I don't think so. I think we've hit just about everything. I really. I'll say that anybody listening, looking at the voices, the writing group, writing is so amazing, and writing with adopted people is so fun because, just just like when you, you and I talked about the um, conference earlier being in a space where you don't have to explain or get pushback for your feelings about adoption, even if they don't totally mirror somebody else's is a blessing. You don't understand until you're sitting there in it and you feel a lot less crazy when people are writing your thoughts that you've never talked to before and you can suddenly go, Oh my gosh, that's not just me. Mm,
2: Yeah.
0: You're such a great writer.
1: Thank you. And I just, I love that atmosphere of, being in those
0: groups of people. Yeah, that piece you read week six of Cohort 10, I was like, wow, I was just, just trying to write all these different lines It just spoke to me and it was just so well done and maybe if you come back on, you'll read some of your pieces. I'll put um, links to your published pieces with Severance and, and anything else you want, I'll put it in the show notes. Okay.
1: So well, people can check out your writing. If you want to If you want to, you know, put adopting Voices out there, I submitted the piece you're talking about that I read for the easing for Cohort 10.
0: Oh, great. So it should
1: be in there. So that that was the one that I actually landed on, edited down a few more times and submitted.
0: Fantastic. Well, I have so enjoyed this conversation with you. Thank you so much for having it.
1: Me too. Thank you for taking me on here and talking to me.
0: I can't seem to get enough of hearing Brad share a part of his journey. I believe I've listened to every podcast he has done to date, and I learn something new each time. I encourage you to check out his other interviews or conversations, which can be found in the show notes through his link. It's sometimes interesting how, when, and where you'll meet someone. I'm often fascinated by the timing of things. I knew meeting Brad was just a matter of time since connecting with Fred Nakora, who can be heard on Season 8, Episode 123 of this podcast. Neither Fred nor I could predict that I would finally meet Brad in the Adoptee Voices writing group that I co-facilitate. It was perfect to meet Brad in that space. Brad's discovery of his biological father being a resident for many years at the Angola State Prison is one of the most unexpected twists that I didn't see coming upon first hearing his story. I can't even imagine how that news first landed on a member of law enforcement. Brad's openness to meet his birth father, listen to what he had to say, and embrace him as someone he truly learned to like and love is an example of not being attached to a certain outcome. I agree with Brad's belief that any one of us are likely only two grossly poor decisions away from finding ourselves in a negatively life-altering consequence that affects us and many other lives. There's an acronym, VUCA, V-U-C-A, used in the military that means volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. When I think of VUCA and apply it to adoption, and specifically for an LDA, it feels like it can be an even heavier load to carry when it comes to navigating the subject of trust. LDAs certainly have more than their fair share of VUCA in their life, and I'll always hold space for that. Thank you, Brad, for having this conversation with me and being willing to share with my listeners a bit about what goes on in the mind of a professional investigator. I know we could have shared more about that. Maybe we will do that in a future recording when I invite you to return and read one of your favorite pieces. Though we didn't discuss it here, I appreciate learning that you and three other male adoptees have put into action creating a podcast together, specifically with the male adoptee in mind. I already know that it will be a tremendous resource to our ever growing adoptee empowered movement where males are often underrepresented in the community. You have truly stepped up in a short period of time to share deeply personal parts of your journey, become a board member of Right to Know that welcomes all adoptees, and of course, published your powerful essays for the benefit of helping others put words to their relinquishment and adoption experience.